Hello, everyone, and welcome to our monthly podcast entitled Markets Turn Defensive. It is the 13th of May. My name is Lorna Denny, and I'm joined today by Seamus Lyons and Thomas Fulgham. Uncertainty now surrounds financial markets at every turn, whether from the prolonged crisis in Ukraine, the slowdown in China, or more aggressive central bank policy. And as inflation soars and growth slows, the risk of contagion is rising. It's little wonder that markets have taken a defensive turn. We will look today at how these uncertainties are playing out across different asset classes and how our tactical asset allocation has been adjusted to take advantage of recent market moves. Seamus, as a scene setter, could you start by giving an idea of exactly how volatile markets have been at the start of this second quarter? Hi, Lorna. So equities for sure have been under a lot of pressure in recent weeks, and we've seen a lot of volatility in markets, not just equity markets, but bond markets as well. Maybe just to share some numbers. So for Q2 so far, so since the beginning of April, we've seen some big negative returns. The S&P 500 in the US is down 13%. Europe and Japan are down a little bit less, down 6-7% in their local currency terms, but their currencies, certainly the euro, has really underperformed versus other currencies such as the dollar. You know, if you're looking at things in dollar terms, you could add another four or five percent to those numbers. Emerging markets had a difficult year last year, difficult start to the year this year. For the quarter so far, it's down another 13 percent. If you look at it on a year-to-date basis, it's down on now almost 20 percent. And most of that's coming from China. China's had another difficult year. It's down 26 percent. U.S. markets down 17 percent on a year-to-date basis now. So it's pretty negative returns out there. And even other markets like the Nasdaq, big darling for investors in recent years, down almost 20 percent on the quarter, 27 percent on a year-to-date basis. More even because this correction began actually November last year. So you're seeing that that is deeply correction territory as we speak. So growth stocks under a lot of pressure. So yeah, difficult start, difficult recent period for sure in equity markets. It has indeed, but have the traditional safe haven assets come to the fore? Yes and no. You'd normally expect government bonds to provide some form of support or protection in these kind of difficult markets, but they haven't. So we've seen bond yields, these have been rising. So as a result, the prices have been falling too. And it's because it's the same worries that are impacting both the bond and equity markets. So we're seeing rampant inflation and this is requiring necessary monetary tightening from the central banks. And as a result, both bond investors and equity investors are worried. So you're not seeing bond yields or it's like bonds do as well and be that safe haven asset as they normally would be. But there has been other areas which have done well and have protected. So you're seeing the US dollar. This is at a 20 year high right now. There's increasing talk that we might actually see parity with the euro. This is something we haven't seen since shortly after the creation of the euro back in 2002. Gold's doing well, so gold's having a great year so far. Commodities as well, they've generally been doing okay. Although we have seen volatility in certain parts of the commodity markets, but generally they've had a good year so far as well. So yeah, it's a bit of a mixed picture there. Yes, indeed. The oil price reacted very sharply to the crisis in Ukraine, but that has in fact become less volatile in recent weeks. It's trading within a range between $100, $110. And the price there is clearly being restrained by developments in China. Thomas, could you please update us on the current situation in China with regard to the COVID lockdown? Sure. So regarding China's COVID situation, we currently see a mixed picture. On the one hand, we see the nationwide daily cases falling from over 30,000 around mid-April to currently below 5,000. Also, while in mid-April, cities accounting for around 40% of China's GDP were in some kind of lockdown, this number decreased to below 20%. On the other hand, there is still a strict lockdown in most districts of Shanghai. China 
China's main financial and port city. Shanghai currently has the strictest form of lockdown in China. Besides Shanghai, there are four other cities in total 8% of GDP which impose the strictest form of lockdown, which have a significant impact on the local economic activity. Also in the capital Beijing, there is still uncertainty around potential stricter lockdowns. And the impact on China's economy has already been significant. For how long can this zero-COVID policy now be maintained? It's a difficult question. In a recent statement, the Chinese government reaffirmed that both economic growth goals and COVID containment need to be achieved and that they will stick to their zero COVID policy. Actually, to be more precise, recently China aims in the stricter lockdown cities like Shanghai to have zero community spread, which means no positive cases of people outside of quarantine. The current goal in Shanghai is to reach several days of zero community spread before a loosening of the restrictions in the specific districts are possible. To put it in perspective, this Tuesday, Shanghai had a first day without any community cases. Yesterday, Shanghai had in total around 2,000 cases, four of them were not quarantined. It's also unclear how a gradual loosening of the restriction would look like should the goal of zero community spread be achieved. For China's current policy to work, they need frequent mass testing and early and rapid quarantine of infected persons in close contacts, which already worked in the past in some cities, like for example in the tech hub Shenzhen. Given we have no experience with this kind of approach in other parts of the world, it's hard to say for how long this policy can be maintained. Yes, but China is now facing forecasts of a negative quarter for this second quarter. Is the government's 5.5% growth target still achievable for this year? Yeah, as you mentioned correctly, the government set the target at 5.5% for this year. The Bloomberg consensus is currently around 4.8%, with the lowest at 3.6%. But especially recently, these forecasts were revised down. At the current stage, it's hard to imagine that the growth target will be reached if they need strong monetary and especially fiscal stimulus. Given the important party congress meeting in October this year and the renewed statements that economic growth goals need to be achieved, the market and ourselves expect further stimulus. Whether this will be enough depends how effective the stimulus measures and how sustainable the current COVID policy will be. Yes, indeed. And could you give us some indications from China of renewed supply chain disruption with, of course, the broader implications that would have for Asia and indeed elsewhere in the world? Yeah, we still see supply chain disruptions in China, especially due to described lockdowns in an important port city like Shanghai. China's April PMI data was not surprisingly very weak. The April market manufacturing PMI dropped from around 48 in March to 46, and the service PMI dropped from 42 to 36, levels we have not seen since the COVID outbreak in February 2020. The drop of the China PMIs recently contributed contributed also to weaker global PMIs. Yes, and this weakening of PMI data around the world is perhaps not surprising given the uncertainties we described earlier. Seamus, the US Fed recently spoke of aiming for a, a softish landing for the US economy. How much of a challenge is the Fed facing now? 
Yeah, so the challenge was described by one member of the Fed as difficult, but not insurmountable. So uh, history shows that this is not an easy task. There are almost more examples of recessions following rate rising cycles as there are not. So the Fed, they've indicated that there are likely to be uh, 50 basis point increases at its next two meetings, and then afterwards 25 basis point rises at all the other meetings this year. So most are now expecting rates to get to 325, maybe 350. So whether this is enough will depend on the path of inflation from here. So US CPI inflation is running at over 8% now. This is the 40-year high. So we need to start seeing signs of a peaking or easing in price rises. So the longer inflation stays elevated, the more difficult the task is for the Fed. But one positive is that corporates, they're in pretty good shape at the moment. They've got strong balance sheets and ample cash. So at least they are better positioned to weather some tightening of financial conditions and manage any potential slowdown that might come. But the US Treasury bond market seem to be indicating that the Fed wouldn't have to tighten too much before growth actually starts to stall. Yeah, so what we've seen in recent months is a flattening of the yield curve. So a bear flattening with the short end rising more than the long end. So this is indicating that markets believe the Fed would not need to raise rates too aggressively, given economic growth is likely to slow on the back of these tighter financial conditions. In fact, rates may even need to come down again in, a, say, a year, two years time in order to provide support to what will probably be a weaker economy at that time. And in the equity markets, we've recently seen a decided preference for the traditional defensive sectors. Indeed. So whilst equity markets have been taking a bit of a hit, in particular growth-oriented stocks, there have been some areas which are holding up better. So namely your traditional defensive companies and companies with good dividends, they've seen some good outperformance. So for example, food stocks, Campbell's, known for their soups and Kellogg's, these have, these have been outperforming. You know, these kind of companies are facing rising costs and their, their margins are, are being squeezed. But at the same time, investors are looking for these, you know, these defensive sectors to preserve their capital for better times ahead. Yes, if we could take a more optimistic tack here, what potential bright spots do you see on the horizon? So the valuations, for one thing, there's a lot of bad news already priced into markets. And given the move that we've seen in bond yields, it's hard to say now that the Fed is still behind the curve because this is something they've been accused of a lot in recent months. So, you know, valuations are definitely more attractive. The rate rising cycle, this has begun now in many key regions. So this should begin to have some effect, you know, and help tame inflation in the weeks and months ahead. And recent inflation numbers are not showing significant signs of easing, but equally, you know, they're not showing signs of further increases either. So you know, we should see some of the key drivers of inflation, such as like supply constraint issues, these should ease and demand's likely to fall further from here as well as growth flows in many of the economies. So yeah, a lot of markets and asset classes are beginning to look a bit more interesting once again. Yes, and Thomas, those lower valuations Seamus mentioned are particularly striking in China. Exactly. The current forward PE of the MSCI China is at 9.8, which is almost 50% lower than at the latest peak in February 2021. Especially compared to global equities, we see almost record high valuation discounts between the MSCI China and MSCI World. Besides that, the PBOC has indicated that they will be more supportive with potentially further rate cuts. And as mentioned earlier, this will likely be combined with further fiscal stimulus, probably through more infrastructure investments and at least temporary some easing of the property market policies. Yes, indeed. So the picture is certainly not exclusively one of doom and gloom. In the light of this and Seamus, could you please talk us through the recent changes we have made to our tactical asset allocation? Yeah, sure, Lorna. In the near term, we don't see the outlook improving too much with many of the current factors that are weighing on market sentiment. They're still there. So, you know, inflation is likely to remain well above the central bank targets. 
far into next year. And this presents an issue for equities and creates a bit of an uncertain path for them in the foreseeable future. So with this in mind, you know, we're maintaining a preference for US or Asia Pacific equities relative to European or Eurozone equities. You know, Europe is the region most impacted by what's going on in Ukraine and most exposed to inflation-induced slowdown. So we're not very positive on the European region. We are more positive actually on China now. I believe we're nearing the point of, of maximum pain and the risk reward now is becoming more attractive again on the back of this. On the bond side, given the large moves that we've seen in yields, we are less negative here. So we've been very negative in bonds for a long period of time but you have seen some big moves in yields. And so they are more attractive, I suppose, from a valuation perspective. And in, in the, the corporate bond market, we've seen credit spreads. They've widened by quite a bit recently and on a year-to-date basis as well. So we think they're a lot more attractive. So actually, in the back of that, recently, we've gone from an underweight in investment-grade credit. We're now back to a neutral stance. And in high yield, we've actually moved to an overweight. So the high yield asset class, and now yields over 7%, closest to almost 7.5% in a US dollar basis. So it's attractive level to trade that in a long time. So yeah, they'd probably take the key changes that we've been focusing on. Thank you both very much indeed. Thank you, Lorna. Thank you, Lorna.